This is Bernard Hiller, and welcome to the Actor's Guide to Success podcast. I'm an acting coach, I have a school here in Hollywood, and I hold acting masterclasses in over 20 countries around the world. I'm also a producer, screenwriter, and author of the acting and success book, Stop Acting, Start Living. We are storytellers, we are people who can actually make a massive difference to other people's lives. You have to be studying as an actor like you were studying to be an Olympic swimmer. I've been teaching actors all over the world for the past 20 years, and I've discovered that there are millions of artists who study their craft but never learn how to succeed in their profession. Don't wait around. Like, make it, you know, I, I just always encourage people to take control. Any chance you can to keep acting, whatever you do, it's going to help. You're going to improve. My mission with this podcast is to inspire you and give you the tools you will need to live the life you always wanted. On this show, we will meet incredible personalities from show business and Academy Award-winning guests who will share their secrets so you can use them on your journey. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to introduce somebody who is extremely talented, probably the most talented person we've had here, because you do so many different things. Oh, right. All right, so there you go. He's a stand-up comedian, he's an impressionist, he's an actor, he's a director. Uh, he is so many things, we're gonna find out about him. I'm honored to have him here, the one, the only, Mr. Kevin Pollack! Very well trained. Very nice. No, they're ex they've been excited to see you. Okay. Okay. I want to tell you a little bit about uh, Kevin's illustrious career. Mm -hmm. He's done over 80 films. I don't know the exact number, 91, but I do know. You know. <laughs> 91 that films. six of them and are quite good. Because six of them are quite good. We have a lot of good ones. Some of my favorite films. He was in Unusual Suspects. Yeah. Uh, let's hear for that. With Benicio Del Toro and Kevin Spacey in a great, great film. A Few Good Men. Yeah. A Few Good Men. Tom Cruise. Um, what's the other guy that you do so well? Uncle Jack. Yeah, yeah. Jack He's an incredible impressionist. Maybe we'll, we'll get a few things with Jack Nicholson. He's also worked with so many different people. Uh, he worked in Casino, the incredible Casino. Yeah. Tip for that. Woo! Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro. Don Rickles, Sharon Stone. You've also had director uh, Ron Howard. Sure. Uh, you've also had the director Tom Hanks. You've been in. The, I mean, he's had an incredible career. Um, he also did a film with one of my favorite films because one of my favorite actors with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, Grumpy Old Men. Yeah. Or more Grumpy Old Men. You did a couple of them, right? Uh huh. He also worked with Jennifer Lopez. Yes, ooh la la, and yeah, yeah. one of my favorite. Her biggest hit, actually. That was her biggest hit, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, Eddie Murphy, Bruce yes. Willis. Yeah. I mean, look at this. Who am I going to mention? Bruce and oh, I have done three movies. Three together. movies together. Come on, this is just incredible. Um, and also with one of my favorite actors, uh, with Rod Steiger. Okay. Who, yes, sure. Rod Steiger. You were in there. It's one of my favorite. I've I've met. Uh, Kevin, uh, a few years ago, well, a couple years ago, I don't know how long, we don't want to say how long it was, but we, we did a movie, we did a movie together called... The internet will tell them Yeah, the internet, but 
They don't know about the internet. 30 years. <laughs> 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, we did a film 30 years ago. I was 11. Ago. Yes, he was 11. And I was seven. I was younger. And I always looked up to you. That's right. That's right. And uh, he was in a movie called Avalon with Barry Levinson. And we were together. And I remember when he first got on the set and how talented he was. And uh, we recently were able to connect. And I said, please come to my class. And I am honored. And let's hear it for one more time from Mr. Kevin Pollack. We, we want to know a little bit about your journey. Uh, and I took the 405 to the 101. Right. Was it, did it move? Everything was moving? It's fine, yeah. <laughs> so it going home is going to be a pain. Yeah, it's going to be a pain. Well, yeah. we'll, get you, we'll get you out as fast sure. as we can. Uh, you started doing stand-up com comedy. What made you want to do that? I mean, where did that come from? Uh, my parents brought home a comedy album, and they put it on the stereo hi-fi, which, when I was a kid, was a piece of furniture that you would listen to records on. It was literally a seven-foot-wide piece of furniture, the stereo hi-fi. Compare that to the iPhone where you listen to the music, you know? And they played this comedy album, and they sat, and we sat as a family and listened to it, and my parents laughed uncontrollably at the sound of this guy coming, talking out of the furniture. And uh, I'd never seen them laugh like that, ever. And uh, it was almost as bizarre as seeing them openly weeping. You know, it was really unreal. And I just thought I would like to make them laugh that hard, you know. Every kid wants their parents' attention, but this was a very specific kind of uh, reaction that they had. So when no one was around, I listened to the album. Which was? Well, he went on to have tremendous success as uh, uh, arguably the most prolific serial rapist, uh, Bill Cosby. I see. Uh, yeah, but so when I was a kid, they didn't, on the liner notes of the album, they didn't put any of the serial right. rape but, uh, parts. I remember listening to that. That was very funny. It was his first album, very, yeah. It was very funny. And he had this routine on it, Noah in the Ark, and it was kind of a classic thing. Anyway, so when no one was around, I'd put the album on, and I would, you know, listen to it over and over and over and over and over again. And then eventually, when no one was around, I stood in front of the stereo and acted like I was the person talking. So I, I was lip-syncing without knowing lip-syncing was a thing or that, or even thinking I had created anything. I was just playing, you know? I was nine, ten years old. And my mom came home and caught me, literally caught me. Uh, and her, her reaction was, you're doing that for the Zookers at Passover. <laughs> she instantly hired me. Uh, you got a gig. I got a gig. <laughs> First audition, without Bird. even realizing I was auditioning. You got two matzos for it? I got uh, probably <laughs> matzo, sure. I mean, I was going to get that anyway. Um, so, you know, it was, like, it was a, a white painted brick fireplace the way the Jews would do in the 60s. And uh, it was a stage, you know, and I stood on it and uh, did this routine, uh, lip syncing this, this routine off the album. And there was probably... Uh, about this many people. Um, so I went from just me in the stereo to a room full of people who... And you were doing those jokes? Well, I was lip-syncing. Oh, you were lip-syncing. So oh, I see, I see. So it was, it, was, it was without even knowing or designing it. Right. It was a fail-safe 
uh, routine because he's got an award-winning comedy album. He's telling the stories. He's beloved. And this 10-year-old precocious Jewish kid is lip-syncing and acting like he's the one telling the story. You know, clear my throat at the same time he does. And, and uh, they went bananas. They loved it. They, went, they absolutely went crazy. And that was it. It was over. It was over in that moment. And I did that same routine all through junior high and high school, every occasion, the folk festival, the father-daughter dinner dance, whatever the occasion at school was. Lip-syncing. I, I did the lip-syncing bit. And I didn't really talk as a performer until maybe I was 16 or so, and I started doing impersonations and still not speaking in my own voice, interestingly enough. Uh, and then I started performing in nightclubs when I was 17. Wow, where did you start first? Well, I'm from San Francisco, um, the other great city, and everyone thinks I'm from New York. I think it's an attitude. That's what problem. I thought. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're not from New York? No, I'm okay, exactly. Well. I'm from the other great city. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm a California Jew, which means basically I'm Catholic. <laughs> uh, uh, so. <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, so I, I, there was a guy who was dating someone I knew uh, from high school, and he had uh, a pretty successful local music career where he could sell out, you know, these small venues and um, bars, whatever, you know, little clubs. So he saw me perform at one of the school functions and called me in to audition to be his opening act. Wow. And I performed for him on his couch in his house, doing my stand-up, just me, not the album. And uh, it was horrible, because it's one person, you know. No one laughs, nothing. But I mean, he's, he, would, he would smile, and he would, you know. And you're dying. And he would say, oh, that's great. I mean, he was being sincere. It wasn't dying, it was just there's no momentum from one person, <laughs> you know? There's no crowd react. Even to that line I just said, there's at least seven people reacting. And just one person was, uh-huh. <laughs> so I, I thought it went horribly, and he said, you got the job. And then I opened up for him, and then, you know, I started opening up for other bands around town, and, and uh, yeah, that was, that was the start. Before comedy clubs, you know, I was doing that. Where did you get the ability to do all these incredible impressions? I don't know. No, but you do. You, you do Jack Nicholson. Can well, you I have... Where did you get all I, these... I, it's a strange uh, ear. So many. You know, to, to hear someone's voice and be able to recreate it was weird um, and, and sort of inexplicable because, you know, every... I, you know, I've sort of overanalyzed it over the years because it's been 40 years. Uh, and so... Every child learns to speak by mimicking sounds. That's how every child learns to speak. And some of us have a, a, a weird DNA thing where we don't let it go after childhood. You know, I've met other actors who can do great impressions. They just aren't known for it. There's a weird thing of, of mimicry. So now I have what's become, you know, the lamest brag you will ever hear. If you Google Christopher Walken impersonation, it's become so pedestrian to do Christopher Walken that th there are 60,000 search answers to that. And it leads to you. Google question. 
I'm number one. He's number one. Would you By the want- way, that and $7 will buy me a coffee at Starbucks. We are going to give you $7. This is a worthless title. Can you do, can you do a little bit of... Would you, would you like to hear some? Yeah. Wow. Can you do one? Do you want a question of yours? Well, you have to, I'll tell you what. I'll, you can ask Christopher Walken any question, but just keep in mind all of his thoughts are completely disconnected. Right. That's something you need to know about him. Now you can ask him anything. Christopher, uh, tell me, how did you first know that acting was for you? Frankenstein never scared me. <laughs> uh, did you... Marsupials did, do. <laughs> did you ever Because st- they're fast. <laughs> and they dart. That's crazy. <laughs> so yeah, did, you know, did, they're did, all did, disconnected, right. all the thoughts. Did, yeah. So I, anyways, yeah, so... Uh, I, I just always did voices, and then... Um, you know, I, I, they're door openers. And I, after a while, I start to deconstruct this parlor trick that is an impersonation. But the truth is it taught me how to create character because I am sitting and I'm not moving. But when I usually learn an impression or think about it, it starts with the feet and goes all the way up. It's a complete physical possession. possession. Mm-hmm. You know, when I do certain people, I, I have to think like them. And so before I knew it, I was learning or teaching myself how to create character. Um, I had a leg up because I could watch the actual person, right? So if you're playing, everyone who does a biopic now wins an Oscar. So if you do, if you were to do a, you know, a living person, you could study film of them, right? And uh, I was enthralled as a kid by Peter Falk's Colum- Lieutenant Columbo, you know? That was yeah. one of the first big ones. Did you know Peter Falk? Yeah. yeah. So anyways, he had one glass <laughs> eye. He was very famous for having one glass eye. <laughs> and I remember reading in TV Guide when Columbo was on, I was a kid, he talked about having this glass eye from age three and how he was playing Little League and he slid into second base and the ump called him out. And he took out the eye and handed it to him and said, you clearly need this more than I do. <laughs> so from that, I taught myself how to move just one eye. Well, how do you- because I thought that was part of the character, you know. And uh, it happened because Mel Brooks uh, directed his wife in one of his movies, Anne Bancroft, brilliant actress, The Graduate and everything else. Um, and it was just a close-up of her and she did this in the close-up. And I watched her do that and I thought, okay, so she's crossing her eyes, looking to the left, crossing her eyes, looking to the right, crossing her eyes. So if I cross my eyes and look to the left and cross my eyes and look to the left and cross my eyes and look to the left, it'll look like just one eye is moving. And that's all this is. So, but again, I was learning to create character and build nuance as a stand-up comedian first. So I had no formal training as an actor when I got to LA and started auditioning. I had just put in my 10,000 hours as a comedian on stage and had lived through bombing and, and surviving and, and all that rejection from a group of strangers. You know, <laughs> right. they really make it clear in a single moment when you land at the punchline and they don't agree with you. At all. Right. It's deafening. Uh, I directed, the first thing I directed was a uh, documentary 
uh, still available on Amazon. Called Misery Loves. Misery Loves Comedy. Yeah, we we debuted at the Sundance Film Festival in 2015. It was thrilling. But it's a, it's a talking heads documentary where I interview over 60 annoyingly famous funny people with the premise, do you have to be miserable to be funny? Um, and so uh, there was a section, a chapter called Bombs Away, where I just they just talk about bombing. And it's the rejection from bombing. When I got to auditioning, I could go into any room, and if things weren't going well, yeah, I didn't care. You know, I, it, it, I had suffered way worse rejection. So the fact that there's a couple people there who don't think I'm doing the scene right, okay, I didn't write it. Was my first thought. <laughs> I didn't write it. I blame the author. <laughs> you yeah. should, and you, sh and you should. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing was the problem. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I learned you know, how to break down a scene and all that stuff by talking to other. Dana Carvey and I came out of San Francisco stand-up at the same time. And, and he was already out here, and so he would, he would talk to me about auditions and breaking down a scene. And, uh, yeah. Who are some of the comedians that have inspired you uh, as you were doing stand-up? Who well, did you look at and say, wow? Yeah, I mean, Steve Martin and Albert Brooks, people that most of the young people here, you know, maybe have heard of, but don't. You know, Steve Martin's first comedy album, which was recorded in San Francisco at the boarding house. Is that with um, the arrow in it? Yep. The white suit and the arrow. Uh, <laughs> Let's Get Small, it was called. Um, you know, that was revelatory. Um, speaking of revelatory, I was just in uh, London three days ago and saw James McAvoy do Cyrano de Bergerac on stage. Good. It was so singularly brilliant, and it, and it's very the text is very syncopated and poetic, and I instantly thought, "Get the fuck out, Lin Manuel. This is." This is it, because uh, James McAvoy's power on stage is undeniable. It is a hurricane. Uh, I'm sure it's going to come to New York. It's it's the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. Wow! Easily, wow. easily. Yeah. That's in yeah. London. I remember I was in uh, New York when Dana Carvey was on Saturday Night Live, and I went to see Fences with James Earl Jones on Broadway. And at intermission, I called Dana, the only person I knew in New York, in a panic. And I said, I, I, I'm a fraud. I can never, ever call myself an actor. He said, where are you? What's happened? I said, I'm at intermission on this play, Fences on Broadway, and James Earl Jones is, you know. The great. One well, the he's just making me realize I should never call myself an actor. I'll never be able to do what this guy does. And Dana said magical words. Relax, we're comedians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 91 movies later, I'm still a comedian. No, you're quite, quite, quite an actor. I've seen. Well, you know, I, I, I was so deathly afraid of being caught acting that I learned a technique that people study their whole lives. Which is? Less is more. Um, and it was on A Few Good Men that I, I, I really felt like I'm going to be found out on this film. You know, the first couple of weeks, you know, there's... I'm at rehearsal, Tom Cruise and Demi Moore and Rob Reiner, the director, treating me like I belong, but it was a feeling of someone's going to tap this comedian on the shoulder and say, 
we meant Kevin Klein. Can you? Yeah, <laughs> <No, laughs> <the> Kevin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I went to. There was an actor in the film. For those who have seen it, those who haven't, spoiler alert: it's 27 years old. But uh, J. T. Walsh plays Nicholson's right hand man, kills himself with a gun. But uh, he was this brilliant Chicago actor that did a lot of David Mamet plays in Chicago and films. Eventually, just brilliant beyond belief. Studied J. T. Walsh. And so I went to his trailer and to confess, you know, this is the movie that I get found out on. And he's the one who clued me into, you're doing a technique that people train to learn, which is less is more. I've been watching you. But you need to know there's a second half of that. Less is more, nothing is best. If you can do nothing in a scene and be interesting, then you win. And so I have made a career out of doing nothing. Now, because I'm so deathly afraid of being caught acting, right. like schmacting acting, right. Right. that uh, I'm always just trying to do nothing, which is just to make every moment authentic and not performed, you know? Uh, so, yeah. Um, let's hear it for Kevin. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> no, no, it's very important. You have, you have done some incredible performances. What was it like, since you're talking about A Few Good Men, what was it like to be on the set and to meet a person that you make an impression with, Jack Nicholson? Yeah, so I'd been doing Nicholson in my stand-up bag for a long time before I did that movie. And interestingly, there's a moment in the film where Tom's character impersonates Nicholson's character. And when we did it in, on the day on set, it wasn't in the script that he impersonates him. It's just in the script that he, he, re, he repeats something that Colonel Jessup said. And then Tom did it as Nicholson. You know? And I remember after the take, when, when the director, Rob Reiner, yelled cut, everyone sort of looked at me like... <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, it's great. It was phenomenal. And then after, you know, since people have asked, did you show him what to do? But the truth is, I, I didn't... I didn't really, I didn't want to be the one who was bugging Jack Nicholson. Even though we're co-stars, I made a point of sort of giving him his space and because I just was also afraid I would just fanboy out and it would be, it would be over, you know. Um, but like, for, like first thing in the morning, uh, you know, you go in the hair and makeup truck, it's eight, barber chairs, you know, you sit in one, they try to make you look better, and I'd walk in and I'd see Jack sitting in one. I'd go to the other end, you know, just give him some space. And I remember one day, Kiefer Sutherland, who's also in the movie, uh, walked in and walked right up to Jack and said, hey Jack, you want to get a beer after work today? And Jack said, that sounds great, Keith. What time do you suppose that ought to be? <laughs> and I remember thinking, fuck, that looked easy. He just walked up to him and said, do you want to grab a beer? So I, I, um, I, uh, <laughs> yeah. And then he hit on, and then my mom came to visit and she hit on him. <laughs> that was the most horrifying moment of my entire life. Talk about that. I want to hear about that. So, you know, I'm, I, it's clear, it's crystal clear to me this is the most important job of my life. It was the eighth movie I'd done, but... Other than Willow, you know, uh, uh, you know the Ron Howard movie and, and Barry's movie, 
uh, Avalon. I mean, I'd already died in Denzel Washington's arms and Ricochet. That was pretty fucking cool. But, I mean, if you're going to die in somebody's arms, yeah. let it be Denzel. And, uh, and, uh, Why not? Yeah. Um, but I went here, but... But, but so I just, you know, th I just knew this was the most important job by far, you know. There was a sense of this is the one. And so in the courtroom scene, when my mom came to visit, you know, I like having my mom on the set, even though she's crazy, but, you know, that's everyone's mom. And uh, when she showed up, the camera was set up over Nicholson's right shoulder as he was on the stand, you know, for that great soliloquy, and uh, which they shot for five days from every angle possible. Wow. Yeah. Jack worked a total of 10 days for $5 million. When I, the few times I did speak to him, I said, I got to ask, when you make half a million dollars a day, do you hit the snooze alarm? <laughs> or do you race into the shower wanting to start that day as quickly as possible? So the camera's over Jack's shoulder, and they're shooting camera angle from Jack's POV of the whole courtroom of what Jack sees. So the, the defense team, me and Demi Moore and Tom Cruise and Kevin Bacon over here, and the whole, you know, everyone in the galley and the jury and the... It's everyone from Jack's POV. But the camera is so, angle is so wide that there's no place to hide my mom while she watches us shoot. You know, there, it always has to be an off-camera right, spot. Right, can't be there, yeah. She can't just show up with it. Yeah. So they end up putting her over Nicholson's other shoulder. <laughs> which is no good for me. <laughs> because now my mother is in my eye line. <laughs> I'm sitting across from Jack. I'm supposed to be looking at him. <laughs> and your mother is like... And all I see is crazy pants having the time of her life. So I am freaking the fuck out, needless to say. And unfortunately for me, Nicholson sees how freaked out I am. And this is like a party for Jack, that I'm in so much pain. Because he really, surprisingly to me anyways, he was a goofball. He's a complete and total goofball. And... Uh, the most approachable and the most gregarious, as it turns out. I thought he'd be aloof, you know, to be that cool to five generations by the time I worked with him. I thought you'd have to have people talk about him instead of to him, <laughs> right. you know. But he was such a goofball. So when he sees me freaking out and Rob needed to adjust the, the camera a little and the lights, you know, Bob Richardson, multi-academy award winner, got to work with him twice that, on a casino too. Uh, just genius beyond belief. So well, he started to relight or something, and then there was a little break. So Jack came over to me, the table where I'm sitting there with uh, Tom and Demi, and he said, Hey, Kev, how's it hanging? <laughs> Listen, just wondering if you could do me a favor. Yes. <laughs> I was hoping you might be able to get your mom off my ass. <laughs> huh? Think you might be able to handle that? <laughs> I wouldn't mind so much, but she's hitting on me. <laughs> what the hell am I supposed to do? <laughs> am I supposed to take your mom back to my trailer? <laughs> Is that what you want? <laughs> no, Jack. Don't sleep with my mother. 
To this day, I have a recurring nightmare that I'm walking in the trailer. <laughs> and they're going, what? Yes! The trailer's bouncing up and down. <laughs> and it's you and your... <laughs> no, I, the nightmare is that I'm walking in my trailer and I walk past Kevin Bacon and Kiefer Sullivan having a conversation and Kiefer says, did you hear Jack nailed Pollock's mom? What <laughs> <laughs> the fuck? Uh, yeah, so uh, because everyone treated me like an equal, and um, you know, I started to fit in, and but there was one shot that kind of became a thing uh, for me. Um, there's a moment where, uh, as a as a legal team. We mess something up because Demi character pushes. I strenuously object, she says to the judge. He calls for a break and everyone's dismissed and it's just me, Tom, and Demi, our characters there in the courtroom packing up. And um, I sort of mock her a little saying, you know, is that how you do it, strenuously object? I object. No, 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 I strenuously object. Oh, well, if you strenuously object, then, uh, and then we have a little argument and Tom's character says, you know, all right, everyone go home. We're all stressed out. And then uh, as I'm walking away, she says, why do you hate them so much? And my character has to turn on her and sort of represent the percentage and faction of humans who've been picked on. They picked on a weaker kid. Why? Because he couldn't run very fast. But the whole little speech that Aaron Sorkin wrote for that character was really about bullies. And, and, you, and you realize in that moment, oh, Lieutenant Weinberg was picked on pretty bad uh, as a kid or whatever. And uh, so, But I had to turn on her and dime and just well, go from gregarious and... and seemingly easygoing yeah. to very, very angry. And because I didn't have formal training, I couldn't get there, you know. I was fine if it was less is more, but here I needed more. And I didn't have the training, really, to pull off. Because as I explained, because after several takes of not being able to go there, Rob Reiner, the director, said, all right, let's, uh, let's take five, everybody. And he, he's Kevin, let's take a walk. So we took a walk away from everyone. He was protecting me, and he said, what's going on? I said, I, I don't know. I, I'll get there. He said, I, I, don't, I don't know that you will. What, what's, what's the problem? I said, well, fucking to me, you know, she's a sweetheart and her, has an open-door policy on her trailer, and she's like a mother hen. She's cooking for us. She's a... I, she's so adorable. Every time I turn on her to rip her apart, I see her angelic face, and I, I, can't, I can't get there. And he said, yeah, I, she's really sweet, but, you know, your character has a real problem with her character. You got you to gotta let go that it's to me more you're looking at. And, um, you know, I was being honest and truthful, and he was being logical and not helpful. <laughs> and um, we just kept doing it till I was able to I probably 
got there because I was angry that he made me keep doing it. <laughs> you know, and he, he brought out some a real sort of temper. And there are directors that'll do that shit on purpose. <clears throat> Oliver Stone's kind of famous for being just, an, just, an asshole to actors and actresses just to elicit a performance, you know, which is why I've not wanted to work with Oliver Stone or anyone who would do that, you know. Oh, what about the uh, the famous scene where they call you Weinberg or something? Isn't there some? Isn't there some? Well, line? so Aaron Sorkin, who now you know is Aaron Sorkin, but then had he had written the play, which was right. very successful, over five hundred performances. It was a very successful play on Broadway, right? On Broadway, but that's all he had written. That's he'd, all he had written. And yeah. *A Few Good Men* was his first screenplay adaptation of his own work. Wow. So he was like a puppy on the set, you know. And so, yeah, in the courtroom scene, when in the middle of Nicholson's soliloquy, you know, we, we, we guard that wall, we stand a post, you know, and he's basically trying to dress down Tom Cruise's character as he does throughout the whole film. Who's going to do it? You, you, Lieutenant Weinberg. And our characters meet in the film very briefly. We shake hands, and that is the only time we speak to each other. We don't even speak to each other. We're just introduced and shake hands. We do not speak to each other in the entire film. We have no interaction. And in this powerful courtroom scene moment, he chooses to single out Lieutenant Weinberg, which is just crystal clear anti-Semitism. There's no other reason than to say, who's going to do it, you? You, the Jew, are you going to do it? You know, that's, that was Aaron Sorkin's intent. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, my reaction was, again, less is more, that I wouldn't let him get to me. So whether it, that landed or not, that was my intent in that moment. But, yeah, that was... And people have over the years, over the many years, have come up to me and asked, you know, was that, was that an anti-Semitic, uh, why, or just, you know, not as. Yeah, I, I, I thought so too when I, when I first saw it. Yeah, and people are also of, of like, mind of, well, well, I mean, of course, why yeah. the fuck did he single you right. out in that why, moment? Why? What you did you do to piss like, this yeah. guy off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing, Nothing other than being a yeah, Jew. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely. Weak. Now, you know, he wanted to pick on the weak. Right. There is also another story which we tell, which is that Jack Nicholson had to leave and that you oh, yeah. did his lines. Yeah. And, and everybody, tell us, can you tell that story? Well, so I mentioned that Jack worked... Ten days. Ten days. And That's so right. at the last five were in the courtroom. And at the end of the ten days, Rob Reiner needed him to come back for a little bit more on day 11. And so he had to go to Jack and say... We can't pay your rate. Can you come back tomorrow? And I'll, I promise I'll wrap you by noon. N no, zero chance. It'll be noon 01. And Jack said, sure, Robbie, whatever you need. And so Jack came back, and uh, at 12 noon, Rob Reiner stood up in the middle of a take and yelled, that's a wrap on Jack Nicholson, you know to keep his word. But at that moment, they were shooting again over Jack onto the actor playing the judge. And uh, 
So Jack wasn't even on camera. He was still there for that actor till noon. And then Rob said, that's it. And because I'd been watching Nicholson do this soliloquy for five days, and I'd been doing an impersonation of him at that point for, I don't know, 15 years, every night when I drove home, I was doing that speech into the mirror because it was just so powerful and Such so powerful amazing. Speech. Yeah, amazing speech. It's one of the all-time greats. Yes, absolutely. So in that moment, I realized that, oh, I could maybe help A.J., the actor playing the judge. And so I went to Rob and said, uh, you know, I could sit in for Jack and, and if, if, if a, not to entertain anyone or be funny, but to do the off-camera lines for the judge actor playing the judge if it would help him. I don't want to throw him off because it's someone doing Jack, but I could do it as Jack. And I would even hold the sides if he was nervous about me, which I wouldn't mess up the lines because I knew them at that point. So anyways, Rob went to the actor and the actor said that would be amazing. And I did it. And that for the first take, when Rob yelled cut, the crew you know, gave me a standing ovation, which I was a, not interested in, but B, also, this is not serving... I'm here to serve this actor. That's the only reason I'm doing this. I didn't actually do it to, to entertain anyone. Um, and the greatest compliment was, when you shoot on film, you don't see dailies or the footage you shot for two days. So two days later, Rob Reiner, the director, came back to me and said, I was watching dailies at lunch of Jack's last day and his last off-camera work, I, I was two takes in of you doing it before I realized it was you. Because, <laughs> you know, there's no visual. It's just Jack's voice. So that was, yeah, that was the, one of the best reviews I've ever Absolutely. received. Yeah. Where did you get this kindness and this caring for other people? Where did you get that part? Where, because that's not... Normal? That's not, well, that is normal. <laughs> it's normal for you. But where did you get that whole demeanor that you seem to have? Um, where does that come from? You always have that towards, you're nice to everybody, you're always, you've been exactly the I same was probably, person. people led by example, right? So, being on set with Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon and these icons and these people I worshipped as a, as a kid who wanted to be a character actor, you know, I, I sort of collected character actors the way my friends would collect baseball cards. Right. You know, or comedians I would, who had been on The Tonight Show. I'm having dinner on Monday at something now called the Character Actors Dining Society. Mm. Is that It'll be me uh, and Larry Fishburne and Stephen Weber and Alfred Molina. And Garrett. And uh, uh, Yeah, and he, Spencer Garrett. Spencer was here. Oh, was it great? Yeah, Spencer great. knows yeah. me really well. Yeah. Spencer uh, Garrett was here. Yeah. So, um, but anyways, I learned by other great actors who I admired who were just... Like, Tom Cruise is one of the greatest examples of a generous, giving professional that I will ever experience, truly. Um, making a point of knowing all the crew members' names and, and um, you know, you, you, we, we put movie stars on such an unfair pedestal. We don't expect them to act like a human being. So when you say, why are you so nice? My, I don't understand how, how else to do this. No, no, I'm saying, but I know I met you when you were. Where did that come from? Your, your family was like that? Yeah my, yeah, my parents, you know, we weren't a religious family, but it was definitely due on to others. Yes. Uh, which is the one that made the most sense. 
quite honestly and, and to this day. Why would you treat anyone any differently than how you want to be treated? That, Absolutely. Yeah, so it was really kind of that. No. And I, then just in terms of I remember the first day you were on the set of Avalon. and By the way, again, way in over my head. Because Barry Levinson, who directed that and wrote it, you know, his first movie he wrote and directed was Diner. You've got to see this. It is an acting clinic. Um, because it's about being looking spontaneous and being able to improvise in scenes and also... And he also did the one with uh, Rain Man. Of course, yeah. Right he before, directed Rain Man. Yes, right before he right did Right before Rain Man. Avalon. In fact, the reason he was able to make Avalon is because... he did Rain Man. Rain with, Man was so with successful. Tom Cruise and Dustin... Do you know the story about when he went into the studio and said, you can't test Avalon? No. So you know the testing process? A lot of directors are forced to do it. Some directors count on it. Well, they'll do an early screening for the audiences, and, and they fill out three-by-five cards, or there'll be a Q&A afterwards. Did you like this character? Did you like that character? What didn't you like? That sort of thing. And so he went to the studio that was funding a Avalon before we shot and said, oh, just so you know, uh, we're not letting you uh, test. You're not allowed to test this movie in Baltimore. You're not allowed to test this movie. Uh, it's, it's too small in audiences. You know, they, it, we're not going to do that. And they said, what do you mean we're not going to test the movie? It's, it's how we know how to market films and how to cut, what to edit. Yeah, exactly. We're not doing that. <laughs> and he said, here's a three-by-five card that one of the participants at the screening of Rain Man filled out. This will give you an idea why we're not testing Avalon. And on the three-by-five card from a test audience member of Rain Man was written, hey, why didn't the little guy just snap out of it? <laughs> My favorite part is hey, comma. <laughs> hey, hey, why hey. didn't the little guy just snap out of it? <laughs> right. Um, he seems to be like, no, yeah, with because, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, something's up with him. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so I was a comedian. Barry Levinson was a comedian. He started as a, it was a comedy team with Craig T. Nelson back in the 60s at coffee houses. And so he always thought like a comedian. If you go through his library of films, uh, he always seems to put a stand-up comedian in one of his movies. Um, and he would come to the improv on Melrose and w watch comedians all the time. Wow. So I had gone and bring them in to audition for stuff. And I had already auditioned for, uh, um, what was the, uh, Good Morning Vietnam and Tin Men. I think there was a role in Tin Men uh -huh. after Avalon. But anyways, um, so he had liked me and stuff. And I got an opportunity to audition for Avalon, which was originally called The Family, when it was called The Family. And at that time, I was shooting a six, this is a lesson for sure. I was shooting six-episode summer series that was created by Rob Reiner and Christopher Guest mm. uh, called Morton and Hayes. 1990, <laughs> when there were no original programs on during the summer. It was, it was a weird thing. Uh, you've heard old people complain that there's only three channels and your kids <laughs> don't know what it was like. There was not even any original programming over the summer. They just put everything in reruns. You're on your own. Like, the networks didn't even try. They were no. like, we don't have to do this. Uh, and so every now and then you would get a summer series that would be original programming and people would... And so while I was shooting that as one of the leads in this series created by Rob Reiner and Christopher Guest, I got this audition. And I found out I was going to be put on tape. I wasn't even auditioning for the director. And I convinced myself I was too good for this. 
Why am I being put on tape? I'm, don't they know I'm starring in this series? What the? So I agreed to go to the audition, but I was angry that I had been asked to be put on tape for this casting director. And because there's no notes, you know, you're not this. It's now people, as you are experiencing, are putting themselves on tape all the time. Yeah. So back then, to go into a casting director's office and be put on tape for the director was, it really was a slap in the face. But you had to get over it and stop thinking you were so damn special, which I couldn't. <laughs> and I tanked. And I drove away thinking, fuck them. And then two weeks later, when I was done shooting the series, I remembered how brilliant that script was. And I called my then manager and said, can you get me back in with Barry Levinson? Can I read for him, the director? and explain what I just shared with you. So they got word to Barry, and Barry was already in Baltimore. It was two weeks before shooting. He hadn't cast the role yet. And he said, if Kevin's willing to fly himself to Baltimore to audition for me, that's fine. And you know, I didn't have a lot, so to fly myself to Baltimore seemed like a big deal. And uh, I did it. You did it. And I went to his office where he had production office set up in Baltimore, and I read for him. And, and it was also funny because of the scene was in this cavernous, burnt-out warehouse, if you remember the end when our building, our right. business burns right. down. Right. But it's me and Aidan Quinn, and we're like 30 feet apart from each other in this cavernous space. And so when the audition starts, I'm acting like we're in a 30 feet apart, cavernous warehouse. And I'm shouting my lines to Aidan Quinn, who's going to be 30 feet away from me, and Barry is three feet away, and he goes, what are you doing? Where are you, who are you yelling at? Why are you yelling? <laughs> I said, well, it's you know, stage direction. They're in a way, yeah, but I'm right here. Just talk to me. <laughs> well, there's no yelling. Why do you got to, you know? Because he wanted everything to be so real. So very real. And it's very so authentic. Very and he hated acting, and he hated seeing people act. And all the other actors in the movie were these brilliant, all the other leads are these brilliant stage actors who all wanted to rehearse. And it drove them crazy that Barry wouldn't let them rehearse. He said, no, you're a family. Go to have lunch. Go have dinner. Just go hang out together. And it was uh, an absolute miracle for me to get that part at that point, because it was a drama. And I was a comedian who was, it was going to be legitimized as an actor overnight by this film. But it was uh, a miracle that I was being directed by a director who hated acting and hated seeing acting and just wanted me to be spontaneous, which was all I could do, honestly. It was the only thing I knew how to do. Uh, it was just fortuitous beyond belief. And, um, yeah. We have incredible actors here. We have, as I said, 40 actors from 20 countries. What three pieces of advice would you give somebody who's starting or wants to succeed in acting? What are some things that you could share with us? You've gone through so much. You know so many things. You've, you've really, what, well, could you, what would you say, it, hey, here's something. This you may have heard before. If, if there's something else you can do for a living, do it. Why is that? Why would you say that? Because you're choosing one of the hardest professions possible, given the ratio of people who want to do it and people who get paid to do it and can make an actual career out of it. So really what that means is, are you willing to give your life to it? Because that's what you're going to have to do. If the answer to, I can't do anything else, this is the only thing I want to do, is your answer to that question 
is there something else you can do? Then you have the first step of even remote possibility of doing it as a career. If there's no other option, this is all I can, this is all I want to do. I don't care what I have to do. There's nothing else I can do. Between now and then. Right. Whether it's bus tables or wait tables or whatever it is. Um, while I learn how to do this and why I get, while I get auditions and see if anyone gives a shit that I think I can do this. So you just have to be able to give your life to it. I've heard actors say, so then I moved to L.A. and I said, I'm going to give myself a year. You know, sure. <laughs> and then they'll say, six years later, I got my first thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I went on hundreds of auditions, hundreds. Where at some point it felt like they weren't just saying no, they were saying, how about anyone but you was going to get this? <laughs> That's how far you are from getting this. It's anyone but you. <laughs> anybody. Yeah. Anybody. We almost don't care. <laughs> as long as it isn't you. So, as long as if you, you can survive that level of rejection, that's the one guarantee about this job. That, is, that makes it the most peculiar occupation and difficult. When I talk to those annoyingly famous funny people for the documentary, um... One of the things that grew out of Do You Have to Be Miserable to Be Funny was, why? Why are you doing this? Because Facebook is a multi-billion dollar institution because we all suffer from hey, look at me disease. <laughs> hey, if, look at me disease. Yeah. <laughs> you have a page, you're someone. <laughs> right? I don't know how he knew that. That's very funny. But that's it. That's it. So, but who would choose that, hey, look at me, as a profession, which means you're going to walk into every situation, audition, what have you, with, hey, look at me, and you're going to have to have one room after another say, I don't want to look at you. <laughs> you know, you can put stuff on your wall or your page or what have you. I've not been on Facebook. I've heard stories. <laughs> uh, Sometimes there's trolls or whatever, but you don't know them. You're not looking at them saying, ugh, that was horrible. And when I've directed now a movie, um, not a documentary, but a, a film, a narrative, and people come into audition, I will get a half hour behind within two actors because I just keep giving them notes and keep giving them an opportunity to try it again, to, to take the scene and the direction I needed to go to mm. so. uh, because I'm thinking as an actor having right. been in those rooms how that feels yeah and I can tell you that if it's something I've written or it's just something I'm gun for hire to direct I've spent so much time with the script either way the last film I directed I rewrote the page one rewrite six times I know the material so well and each character so well when you come in to audition for the character there's just an involuntary reaction to your physical being that enters the room as to whether or not I think you're right for the part. You've already got that working against you. If you're not physically correct with what I have in mind, which is absurd because what's written on the page is rarely a physical description other than age, male or female, and maybe 
maybe what ethnic background you have. It's usually about a tone, about a character trait. It's never about a physical look. But as a director, you've already imagined all of it. Or you have famous actors in mind who you're not going to get, but you have them in mind. So you have a physical type in mind. So if someone comes in and just doesn't fit that... Mo so what I started to realize as an actor going into audition, once I, I was told this by a, a director, you know, you're not right for this, but I'll keep you in mind, you're great. And, yet, and I finally, after hearing that 40 times, I said, what do you mean? <laughs> You're not really going to keep me in mind. So what are you really saying? Yeah. That I'm just not right for it? And then you're being nice by saying I'll keep you in mind? Or, or, and the one I said that to said, no, I actually mean it. I actually think you got something. It just isn't this character. So I would like to see you. In fact, have we... And he started talking about some other character that was in the script, talking to the casting director. Have we... You come back and read, the, and they set up a thing for me to come back. I don't even know what happened to it. I just remember I had heard it too many times. Right. And You're not you right for this. I'll keep you in mind. And you thought, what? Because you, you are being nice when you say that. <coughs> if you have a heart, there's a person standing in front of you being as vulnerable as anyone can possibly be. You know, that's the other thing. When I directed this movie, it's called The Late Bloomer. It's on Netflix. I'm proud of about 71% of it. Um, I, I didn't want to audition actors. I just wanted to pick up the phone and call people who I knew and loved because I didn't want to break any more hearts. Wow. I didn't want to... I mean, first of all, I had a shot at, you know, J.T. Walsh six months... Or not J.T. Walsh, but... Um, um, oh, who's a wonderful actor who won all, all the Academy Awards and everything? J.K. Simmons. I knew it was a J something. Uh, six months after he won the Academy Award, you know... I was friendly enough to pick up the phone and call him, and we got him, and I knew Jane Lynch, and we got her. Oh, and, that's great. Yeah, and Maria Bello, and so just those three, we were able to justify the budget, and then I just started picking up the phone and calling other people, and I got Kumail Nanjiani and Beck Bennett and, and uh, all, all these wonderful actors. But when I did audition actors, you know, I, I, I would spend too much time with them just because I wanted them to have every opportunity to get the part even if they weren't physically right for it, which is rare. If you're not right when you walk in the door, they're already in their mind, can't wait for this to be over. And I've been bum-rushed through those auditions enough Fast, times. Fast, quickly. Yeah, just uh, you'll do it one time and they'll say, okay, thanks, thanks very much. Can you want to give me any notes? Let me try. No, no, that was great, thank you. <laughs> that means get the fuck out. <laughs> you're not getting this, go, leave. Yeah, so... <laughs> is that what you want to give your life to? That, that moment? Because it's going to happen. Yeah. It's going to happen way more than you think it's going to happen, and way more than you well, want it to happen. We're, so we're professional you, auditioners. Yeah, that's You're right. You're going to audition more than you're going to Getting the job. job is the job. Yeah, that, that doing is, the job is not the work. No. But I mean, the audition. We are professional auditioners. Yeah. I remember when my uh, daughter was asked in school, "What does your dad do?" Because every day I would say, I'm going to audition, I'm going to audition. Going, so where are you going, Dad? I'm going to audition. So he, she told the teacher, my dad auditions. Like that's, <laughs> like that's his job. Yeah, yeah. That's, I don't exactly know what he is, but he's auditioning. I don't yeah. know what that means. That's pretty sweet. <laughs> um, but, but she's 27 then. 
<laughs> well, after a few good men, I went from auditioning to getting offers. Wow. So this is a this is maybe the most single most exciting moment for any actor uh, who had already been on hundreds of auditions and was growing weary of the chase. So then what happened was an interesting moment. Uh, so a few good men comes out in 92. And then for a couple of years, you know, my agent and I would get on the phone and he would, he would be, what, what, what are the offers? What, I'm not saying there's a stack of scripts 30 deep, but there was always some, something going on for us to discuss. And he, he would say, oh, well, you got to read the script called The Usual Suspects. And I said, who, who wrote it? You don't know him, he's 25. Okay. Who's directing it? You don't know him, he's 25. Why are we fucking talking about this? Who's in it? Kevin Spacey. Now, in 1994, uh, not only did we not know that he was what he is known for now, but in 1994, nobody was greenlighting Kevin Spacey movies. He was a character actor like me. In fact, in 94, based on the success of A Few Good Men, you could argue, argue that I had more clout than he did in 1994. But he was the only actor attached to the script. Um, so my, my, my agent would say, it's written by a 25-year-old, it's going to be directed by a 25-year-old who haven't done anything, and it stars Kevin Spacey. And I would say, what else you got? Because <laughs> when we talked on the phone, it was, what are the elements? Who are these? Who's the director? Right. Who are the other actors? You're going to be as good as the company you keep when you're lucky enough to get offers and right. you can ask these questions. I didn't take it for granted. Now, because I started a stand-up comedian, as a stand-up comedian, when you, get, when you get offered stage time, the answer is yes. The answer is where, when. So I came from that mentality. So when I started getting offers, the answer was yes. And in fact, because of that, I did too many movies in the 90s. Uh, like 40. Wow. Like an absurd number of films. 40 because films. I was a girl who couldn't say no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've heard Because that. that's where I came from. You just say yes. <laughs> um, but when it came to this usual suspects thing that my agent was talking about, you know, it was only two years after A Few Good Men, and I was, I was swimming in it, and I just, what, what else is going on? He said, I know, I know, but there's something about the script you need to read. You need to read it. So eventually he wore me down. I mean, we must have talked on the phone on a half a dozen different occasions where he just kept bringing it up. And finally I read, I got to page five, and I called him and said, I'm in. This script went on to win the Academy Award. Um, I said, I'm in. He said, okay, let me let Brian know. Brian Singer, the director. And he said, uh, I talked to Brian. He said, He's, he can't believe you're going to do it. Uh, there's two parts left. He wants to know which one you want to do. Um, and uh, so he, he said, He'd love to talk to you about these two parts to see which one you want to do and why. So I talked to Brian, and he said, well, I got these two parts. The one I ended up doing and the other part was the one that Benicio Del Toro ended up doing, which, by the way, when you read that in the script, that character is as meaningless to the story as possible. Mm -hmm. Again, spoiler alert, he's only, that character only exists to die to teach the rest of the suspects you can't run from Kazer Soze. That's the whole purpose of that character. He's McManus's sidekick. Wow. He doesn't really say any, anything of import. 
And Benicio del Toro. So, so I, when I met with Brian, I said, "Well, I don't want to do that character because he's worthless." <laughs> and Benicio Good del move. Toro does the character and steals every scene he's in. I mean, every scene. You talk about an actor taking nothing on the page and making it m arguably the most memorable character in the film. There's a moment early in the movie when we're in the police lockup, after the lineup, we're in the lockup. We're all sitting around, and Benicio's character says something, and my character says, what the fuck did he just say? Because he talks really strange and odd. That wasn't in the script. That wasn't me improvising to be clever. That was me, the actor, breaking the scene and asking the director, what the fuck did he just say? Because Benicio and the director didn't tell us that he was going to talk weird. Uh. Yeah. And it's in the movie. He kept it. He kept it in the movie because it made sense because the audience is like, what the fuck did that guy And then we have one of the characters in the movie asking it. So anyways, uh, the point I was going to make was, I said, I don't want to play Fenster. I'm interested in, in Hockney. And he says, okay, great. I'd love you to do the part. I've agreed to see two actors that are going to come in this afternoon, and so it's too late. I don't want to cancel the auditions. They're going to come in. And I said, but you're offering me the part. Yes, but I, I have to see these actors. And that threw me. So on the drive home, I, I thought, one of these actors could come in and be so brilliant, they'd take this part away from me. So I called my agent and said, tell Brian I'm going to come back this afternoon and audition. This is two years into getting off, being offer only. Right. And my agent said, you're not auditioning. You're absolutely not auditioning. Kevin, you don't understand how offer only works. Once you establish your offer only, you're offer only. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working with Tony Shalhoub now in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and he says, he, he likes to say about himself, he's audition only. Uh, <laughs> So my agent was adamant, you cannot audition, because then the word gets out that you audition, and then everyone's going to want you to fucking audition. Uh. But if, you, if you're not available to audition, then they have to make a fucking decision whether they want you or not. And it's, it's a make-believe place, this audition. <sighs> you can't believe it's happening. But you get caught up in it, and you start to believe you've earned that somehow, even though it's just the perception of you that's changed, based on a piece of work you did. So you take credit for that. And I said to my agent, no, no, I'm auditioning. I can't let some an actor come in and steal this part. So I don't care. You just make sure nobody finds out I auditioned, but I'm, I'm auditioning. And I went in and I auditioned and I got the part. Let's hear it for Kevin for that. I mean, looking back on it really was stupid. Because <laughs> I could just as easily lost the part. Yes, but you had to take a risk. Otherwise, you could have. You know, I think you did the right thing. Well, as it turns out, I, no question. But, but yeah. You know, uh, the other little invest thing, in yourself is really, the, I think, the, sto the story there. You're, you're, Don't but, be afraid to invest in yourself and and take those chances if you're willing to do whatever you believe is necessary. One thing that you are also, which I didn't know about, is that you're quite a poker player. Well, is, is that true? Sure. So you're a gambler that you get ready to, to bet on yourself. I guess, and yeah. I, you have to, and you have to figure it out since it's poker. Well, I, but poker is also people? about reading your... Right, and taking risks. 
taking, taking risks, but also being able to read the demeanor of your opponent, right, or your scene partner, right, and, and you're being, very, and like, being present in the moment. Yes, it's very good. I mean, you yeah. are you're also very successful a poker player. You were. I mean, uh, I I've I've cashed in the World Series of Poker main event twice out of six times, which is batting three thirty three, which is Hall of Fame first ballot. Let's hear it for that. Uh, Let's bet on that. But by the way, <laughs> a little more perspective, you know, like friends of mine, like Ray Romano has played the World Series of Poker main event. It's a $10,000 buy-in tournament. We have sponsors. We're not stupid enough to spend that kind of money. You know, I'm dressed up in the logo on a hat like a NASCAR driver. But, <laughs> but it's still a $10,000 tournament buy-in. Um, and Ray Romano's played nine times. He's never cashed. you got to get through three or four 12-hour grueling days of because wow. if you're eliminated, you get knocked out, you lose your chips, you go home. And like a cash gamer, you just keep buying more chips. You get a certain amount of chips, and when you lose them, it's bye bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Jason Alexander's played it seven times. He's never cashed. Guys who are serious poker players. Yeah, because I know Jason. Never Jason. cashed. Never. Both but those guys but played in my, my home game, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I, I, can you tell us a little story about Jack Lemmon and uh, Walter Matthau because I love them so much? Well, what, yeah, what just you? that uh, they were they were character actors who I worshipped. Oh, my God, the Jack who, Lemmon who became movie stars, right. which is not the way it works. Although I would argue, and I think he would agree, Brad Pitt is a character actor. If you look at his work in the Coen Brothers movies, if you look at the, his work in Inglorious Bastards. He's playing such a larger-than-life character, having nothing to do with his own personality. He, that's what character actors do. We have an ability to not just be a movie star, who's Bill Murray's brilliant beyond belief and historically perfect and wonderful, but he's Bill Murray in every movie, uh, with a few exceptions, of course. But Cary Grant is a movie star. You know, Tom Cruise has done some great character work early in his career, and he's just settled into being a brilliant movie star. But we're really depending on him being that. Mm -hmm. So the character actors that I sort of collected, and I think Brad Pitt's work is also his co-star Leo. You know, his work in uh, Django Unchained, that's character stuff right there. That's not leading man performance. So Matthau and Lemon were leading men who became movies, or character actors who became movie stars. But I, I studied and worshipped their work as, as, as character actors. So to work with them and be around them was just surreal. Right. Because they're part of your youth. Check and uh, and uh, yeah, I was doing off-camera lines in one scene for, for Jack Lemon, and he said, are you sure you don't mind doing the off-camera lines, kid? And I said... Of course I don't mind it. I didn't even think it was an option, but of course I don't mind. And he said, well, you know, Marilyn never liked to do them. And I thought, he's talking about Marilyn Monroe? <laughs> like every one of their stories, without trying to drop names, they couldn't, they didn't have a choice, like I probably sound like now. They didn't have a choice because all their stories involved the most famous people in the world who they'd worked with. Um, Mathau was uh, very droll, um, suffered no fools, had the face of a 70-year-old at birth. <laughs> uh, and I, when I first met him, I was on the set, right before we were about to shoot our first scene. That's just how it worked out. And the director said, uh, Walter, uh, this is Kevin Pollock. He's playing your son. And then the director said, oh, i got to check on the lights, and he walks away. 
and then I'm stuck there with Walter Matthau, and I decided to try to make small talk, like an idiot. And I said, so, Walter, the script's pretty good, huh? <laughs> Fucking idiot. And he looked at me and said, the script sucks, kid. I owe my bookie two million. <laughs> he wasn't kidding. He was, he was a gambler, too? Horses? Yeah, on the back of the, the little booklet pamphlet at his memorial service before his funeral were his picks for that Sunday NFL. Oh, wow. That's how famous of a gambler he was. Wow. Yeah. Jack Lemmon, I used to love Jack Lemmon so much. Uh, Brilliant beyond belief. Both of them. A nice person. Super sweet Super. And, and generous and giving and, and great, setting great examples. And Anne Margaret and Zafia Loren also. It puts you, a feel around who hadn't started a movie in 25 years before she came and did the sequel, Grumpier Old Men. How is that, to have Sophia Loren? Well, so, again, she was part of my youth, like one of the most beautiful, stunning women on the planet. Yeah. Uh, and here she is, 65-year-old, just as stunning, and take your breath away. And the first time we meet her, there's a table read before we're going to start shooting. Everyone's in L.A. except for Matthau. He's on Broadway, and I'm not Rappaport with Judd Hirsch. So they put us all in the Warner jet, first time on a private plane. We're going to fly to New York for the table read, and Sophia Loren's on the plane. No one outside of her own circle of friends had even seen her in 25 years. She just walked away, and now she's back. And she, So everyone's on eggshells around her on the plane. There's not a lot of conversation for five and a half hours. And we get to New York, we get in the cars, we go to the hotel, we go to the conference room, we're now sitting around a table where the table is gonna take place, and Walter's late. We all flew, he's late. <laughs> <laughs> and while we're waiting for him, and again, silence, no one's saying a word, because no one wants to say the wrong thing around Ms. Laurent. Oh my God. And Matthau walks in, having never met her in either their lives or careers, walks straight up to her and says, Great to meet you. Love to eat you. <laughs> Every chin hits the table. And she was so cool, she just said, oh, Walter. And he said, I'm not kidding. Everybody else, clear out. <laughs> yeah, that was Walter Matthew. Wow, wow. And she was so sweet, you know, uh, I remember when we were working, I said, um, people are very, very excited about you being back and being in this film, and because and, and, uh, she'd lived in Europe all this time. And I said, Americans are just going to die to have you back in the theater. And I had forgotten that I had said that, and she reminded me at the premiere afterwards at the party. She said, I, I remember when you said to me that America was going to be happy I was back, and I didn't. I thought it was very sweet of you to say, but I didn't think it was true. And I see now the way this audience reacted, because they went out of their minds when she walked on screen the first time. Mm. The audience just erupted with applause. Oh my God, Sophia Lauren. Like it was the theater or something. You know, who applauds at a movie house? You know? That's right, she's here. Yeah, anyways, yeah, she was great. I want to ask you, uh, you've worked with so many famous uh, and super talented directors, mm -hmm. actors. What would you think, what would be uh, a piece of advice that you could 
give us about what is the lesson you learned working with those type of people? What would you? What could you impart? Uh, uh, just uh, why would the, 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 the most important thing I learned uh, about acting, other than less is more, nothing is best, is that every choice you make has to be more s specific than you even think it does. Every everything you say, every pause you take before you say it or don't. The way in life, there's usually a very specific reason, like right now, that I'm saying what I'm saying. And I think it's the easiest thing to lose track of and forget when you're memorizing your lines, is this specific way that each one of those words should be spoken. Um, and that what is the writer's intention of this moment that I'm not seeing? What, how specific could I make my choices for every sentence? Specific choices, making for every single line, every single moment. Every single moment, every character trait, you know. Um, over the years, that's been the most impactful and most important tool, is to make every choice more specific than you think it needs to be because even when you think you're there you can always dig a little deeper and be a little more specific um, I, I, I want them to think and believe that I'm lost in thought so I'll take pauses and look at you, and then keep speaking. You know that on the in the on the page it just says the words. Right. None, none of that's in there. Uh, you've been in the industry for so long. Our, we had just invented fire. <laughs> yes, I yes, that was good. But I want to ask you: uh, Do you still love acting? Because now that you're directing, what is well, what, uh, is, what uh, is the whole uh, artistic it's still, still? It's still all about... What is it? We are as good as the writing, and you're as good as the company you keep on the project. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I feel like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel was picking up a winning lottery ticket. Uh, Let's hear for that show, Marvelous yeah. Maisel. I mean... Oh my God, people love that show. And you keep winning every year. You've won so many awards. I almost brought both of the Screen Actors Guild Awards that we won the last two years as because, a, as a cast. Why, well, because why. you told me that Peter Fairley was here and he brought both of his Oscars. And so I thought, fuck him, this is an actor's class. I'm going <laughs> to bring my two actors. Yeah, the yeah. SAG Awards. SAG Awards for best, uh, best cast. Unbelievable. Uh, what an incredible show. Yeah. When it was Fleabag's year, they kind of won everything except that one. They didn't win that one. Uh, <laughs> and I love that show, especially the second season. In fact, the the sexy priest, as he's come to know, Andrew Scott became a, an award show friend to uh, really? to my my better half and I. Yeah, because he was just so sweet, and we just kept uh, running into him at these award shows. I but, can't. I can't. I'm sorry. But the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you know, that will make you fall in love with acting again. You know, the the pursuit of good material. So if, if you're not auditioning, you still. And that's no longer your job, is auditioning. What does daddy do? He auditions. Your job then becomes saying no to things.
uh, and why, but also lighting a fire under your agent's ass to work for you and find you stuff, but most importantly, good stuff. Finding your own. Any any book that you are in love with that hasn't been purchased and developed a short story. Every time I turn around, they've, they've developed another Stephen King short story. Um, now, with Steven Soderbergh shooting a whole movie on his iPhone. Is that what he's doing? Yeah, he did. Yeah, with the girl that starred in The Crown at an uh, asylum, I think it might be called. Hmm. Um, wow. So you've got no more excuses, really. Get a scene partner, find a scene, shoot it with your phone, show it to people. You can create, you have to create your own content. You have to create your own scenes and work, even if it's just adapting someone else's written work. You have to find a way to do Waiting for Godot that hasn't been done and shoot it and get it to someone. You, we're, we're, we're at a time now where you're limited only by your imagination. And if this is what you want to do, then you start doing it. We, we talk about creating your opportunities all the time here. Yeah. Ten years ago, I created a mar mantra called, if you're, not if you're not creating, you're waiting. We are unfortunately taught to wait for the phone to ring, be it for an audition or, or an offer. Not creating, Eventually. If you're not creating, you're just waiting. And it it's, pertains to your life as well. Obviously, you want to be more proactive in your own life. Should I be watching TV or doing something? To help me, my, to help my career. Yeah. In this case, uh, what can I create that helps me not wait for an opportunity? Um, so if it's, I'll audition for Brian Singer, I'll fly myself to Baltimore. Uh, there's a few other examples, but... You do have to go after whatever you want to do and uh, be willing to work way harder than everyone else. And Can you talk about a film that I love, which I love you in it, Casino? Mm -hmm. uh, let's hear for Casino. <laughs> Can you do a little uh, Robert De Niro? I liked, uh, De Niro. I like The Irishman. My problems are a few, but first, the between first. Pacino... Pesci and De Niro, at some point, I felt like I was watching three old guys who couldn't find their keys. <laughs> Where are they? I don't know where they are. I can't find them. I can't find them. They gotta be here. Somewhere. Where are my keys? It's the Chrysler. McConaughey said, get the Lincoln. This fucking guy with the fucking keys. Bob. Bob, please. What do you want from me? <laughs> Uh, so Pesci and De Niro and Casino, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, uh, they're all looking for their, yeah, and, and, uh, and, uh, Scorsese. Yeah, I was on the set of Usual Suspects when my agent called and said, you have an offer to be in Scorsese's next movie called Casino, written by Nick Pileggi, who wrote The Goodfellas, and shooting in Las Vegas, and De Niro and Pesci and Sharon Stone, who it was arguably her best work, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, and it was like one of those you-can-take-me-now moments. Like, <laughs> I don't know how you beat this moment. That doesn't, you can't, you can't. In fact, doing the job won't be better than this moment. No, right. Did uh, you go? Yeah. 
So my favorite part was that my one of my favorite comedians, Don Rickles, was in the movie because as much as I admired and, and loved working for Scorsese and with Bob, um, can't call him Bob, can't call him Marty, but you have to because that's how they insist it is. So how was it talking to them? Was it? Uh... Well, my favorite part was that Rickles would go after De Niro in front of everyone, and De Niro loved it. Like in the middle of the scene, on the casino floor, they're standing next to each other. Rickles standing there. That's pretty much what Rickles does the whole movie. <laughs> De Niro standing next to him, saying his dialogue, acting brilliantly. Camera's rolling. Scorsese's watching. In the middle of the shot, when De Niro's acting, Rickles would turn on him and say, Is that the way you're going to do it? Like that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you got the awards. I'm sure you know what you're doing. Go ahead. <laughs> and the rest of us are like, oh, shh. <laughs> and De Niro was... <laughs> he loved it. He loved it. That was my favorite part, to be honest with you. Um... Also, because I, I lacked the proper training, when Marty and Bob wanted to do 35 takes of a shot, I am bored to tears after five or six takes. And uh, it was a really important lesson, a, a difficult lesson, as I watched Bob the genius make it fresh and interesting every single take. But I just thought, we got this, right? Uh, <laughs> and they weren't they weren't satisfied. It's also their ritual when they work together to do 30, 35 takes. Of, 30, that's how long it takes. Of every single every single setup. 35 and, uh, takes. I'm. I've had so many directors tell me that. I you know I got to get you in the first three or four takes, otherwise I see the boredom in your eyes. Because <laughs> um, again, I don't have the depth of training to keep it fresh. Uh, that is a lot. Though. Really pathetic. That is, that is a lot. Thirty-five, though. That's is, a lot. That'll that break is, your soul. Yeah, that'll. You don't know what else to do after that. But you know, it, there's a scene at the table in the casino, just me and De Niro. And before we go into the kitchen, and he yells at the chef for too many blueberries in my muffin, not enough in his. But it, while we're sitting there at the table, and we do a take, and then I just remember this little Scorsese head bobbing at the edge of the table. <laughs> And he would say, what do you think? More excited? Is he less excited? What do you want to do? More angry? Less angry? <laughs> and um, I remember thinking, in his composition of the, of the camera, of the shot, Scorsese was as, if you put a graph over the monitor, he could tell you what needed to be in every square of that graph. Everything was meticulous within his composition. Bob Richardson, again, they would light for three hours. Wow. And uh, they, everything was so specific and controlled within that composition. But also within that composi composition, the way Scorsese worked was the actors were free to do whatever they wanted. The direction I got from him was... Is he less angry? Is he more angry? What do you want to... You know, he... he in some act, some directors, when they want you to do it more angry, let's say, they will say, what do you think? More angry, less angry? Hoping you say more angry, which is what they want. But if you say less angry, the smart directors will say, okay, let's try less angry. And they'll give you that knowing, this guy's an idiot. I'll get what I want next time. And then the next time they say, all right, we did less angry. Now give me more angry. <laughs> but when, when Marty said it, he really meant it. What, and with such genuine enthusiasm, what do you want? Do you want to try it more angry or less or whatever? The, 
the emotion was. So that was a great tool <laughs> to take away as a director um, when I do my two or three takes, not, not 35, which is to, to give the actors the absolute freedom to know what I want and let them bring. And a lot of times for direction, I would come up after a take and whisper in the actor or actress's ear, I need 11% more. <laughs> or I need 7% less. And so they would smile or, or giggle a little, but they would know I want less or more. Wow. Right? And then let them figure out what 7 or 11% was <laughs> instead of saying anything more than that. So still giving them the, the freedom of choice. Have we ever had any more, more, more interesting than Mr. Kevin Pollack? Let's hear for Kevin Pollack! <laughs> This is only part one. Okay. This is part one of a six-part series. I can't um, wait to find out what you're able to uh, charge for the next five uh, series. I'm, I'm done. We're going to pay for the same amount. <laughs> we talked to your agent. Yeah. Same billing. We are so grateful, grateful that you are here. Your kindness, your story, your humanity, your artistry. Uh, I feel lucky to have met you way back then, mm. and you have gotten only better like wine. Well, and we thanks. have something. We have a little gift for you because knowing that you, you <laughs> that I you, got better like wine, like wine, we're going to give you as, you as you once told me, life is about uh, pain or champagne, and today it's about champagne. The one, the only, Mr. Kevin Pollack. <laughs> <laughs> sure.